Good morning, all. Christ is risen. Amen. Praise the Lord. I received a story uh, yesterday. Uh, someone followed me. Two donkeys apparently were walking in Jerusalem, and one donkey said to the other, You know, just last Sunday, I was here carrying Jesus. And the people were singing, praising, shouting, and throwing down their clothes for me to walk on. But today, they don't even recognize me. And the other donkey just looked at him and just simply said, Well, that's how it is, my friend. Without Jesus, you're nothing. Without Jesus, you're nothing. Did you know that the word Christian, the word I-A-N, Without Christ, I am nothing. And without resurrection, uh, Christianity means nothing. Uh, Dr. Billy Graham, who recently passed away, uh, once told Time magazine, he said, if I were an enemy of Christianity, I would aim right at the resurrection because that is the heart of Christianity. If you can disprove resurrection, then, you, then there's no Christianity because the heart of Christianity is resurrection. Even Mel Gibson, uh, the director and actor, explaining why the passion of the Christ ends with a scene of the empty tomb. If you recall, uh, it ends with the, the scene of the empty tomb. He said when he was asked why he wants to end off with that, he simply said, well, without the resurrection, our faith is dead. The story is not complete without it. Easter is to our faith what water is to the ocean, what stone is to the mountain, what blood is to the body. Without Easter, there is no Christianity. And that is why the founder of the movement called Jesus Seminal, uh, Dr. Robert Funk, don't be deceived by the name Jesus Seminal. You know, they are just a bunch of ultra-liberal scholars who just try to attack the Bible. And the enemies is always with him. Always. Anyway. Civilization died from suicide and never from murder. Uh, and he offers a perfect example of what Billy Graham was talking about. And this is how Dr. Robert Funk explained what happened to Jesus' body after his crucifixion. This is what he says. The tales of entombment and resurrection were later day wishful thinking. Instead, Jesus' corpse went the way of all abandoned criminals' bodies. It was probably barely covered with dirt, vulnerable to the wild dogs, that roam the wasteland of the execution grounds. No resurrection. That's it. Newsweek magazine offered this uh, article that said, the reason Christ is the center of the Christian faith, the mystery without which there would be no church, no hope of eternal life, no living Christ to encounter today. No other historical figure has ever made the claim that he was raised from the dead. It was this appearance of the resurrected Christ that lit the flame of the Christian faith. 
It wasn't the morality of the Sermon on the Mount which enabled Christianity to conquer Roman paganism, but it was the belief that Jesus was alive. He has been raised from the dead. And so resurrection is the heart of what Christianity is all about. And today, I want to read to you Matthew 28, 10 verses there, just to read through the resurrection account from Matthew. Uh, and I want to offer you three good news on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let me just read to you uh, Matthew uh, 28, verses 1 to 10, and I'll give you three good news on the resurrection of Christ. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, there are plenty of Marys in the Bible, uh, went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly, there was an, a, a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the woman, Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was lying. And now, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy and they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message and as they went Jesus met them and greeted them and they ran to him grasped his feet and worshipped him and then Jesus said to them don't be afraid go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. I want to give you three uh, good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first one is the empty cross. The empty cross promised to us on the forgiveness of sins. If I may give you three empty promises today. Okay? Uh, the first empty promise is the empty cross. The empty cross tells us of the assurance of the forgiveness of of sin. You know, sin is an unpopular word nowadays. I have the prediction and believe that it's a matter of time that when you say someone is a sinner, it is amounting to hate speech. And you can't even say that. And it is also my belief that when such can come, then the true church of Jesus Christ will go underground, especially in the Western world. I think it's coming down that way. Everything's a hate speech. And you say someone is a sinner, that's hate speech. Sin is an unpopular word, but it is a very popular activity. 
the problem with us is that we think sin is just, our standard of sin is so low. Our standard of wrong is so low. We just think you don't lie, you, don't, you just do your work and all that, you're okay. But it's just so low. Our standard of wrong is so low. But biblical standard of sin is so high that we can't meet the standard. Even the best person that you could think of on earth, maybe Mother Teresa or someone else, even then is nothing. The standard falls short. Biblical sin is not just outward behavior. It takes into consideration of inner motives. It takes into our nature. Biblical sin is not just sin against man, but sin against God. Not just sinful behavior, but sinful nature. Not just sinful activity, but sinful thoughts. Not just sins of violation, but sins of omission. Can you imagine sin of omission? Falling short of likeness to God. In 1973, there was a leading American psychiatrist called Carl Manninger. And he published a book called Whatever Became of Sin. And Menninger himself, over his lifetime, had been an eyewitness of the gradual disappearance of sin. And he charts the shift from the days when the language of sin was common currency to its gradual erosion in the post-war World War II era and the eclipse of the language of morality by that of psychology. Sin is no longer sin. Sin is just what they call, sin is localized. It's called cultural relativism. If one culture say it's wrong, it doesn't mean to say all cultures say it's wrong. Sin is defined by each individual culture. If that culture don't think that child sacrifice is wrong, then it's not wrong. It is local. It's, it's, it's been, we live in a global community where we can see firsthand the astonishing diversity of cultures and moralities from around the world. So if a particular culture has developed a different morality from ours, who are we to criticize what works for them? So sin is local. It's cultural relativism. Oh well, if cultural relativism is true, then nobody has any basis for criticizing any other culture. So no one has the right to criticize Nazi Germany or, or Idi Amin Uganda, Paul of Cambodia, Stalin of Russia, and Mao Zedong of China. No one are permitted to say that they've done anything wrong if that is the way we define sin. But sin has not just only been defined as localized, but it's also de de defined as judgmental. Not just cultural relativism, but personal relativism. There's no such thing as a universal codes of conduct or ethics that are binding on all people. All I can really is what works best for me. And so that will depend on the range of variables, my culture, my personality, my upbringing, the climate I live in, and so on. So everybody's truth is different. And that is why modern uh, author, uh, late Francis Schaeffer, who founded the Labri movement from Switzerland, he said, modern men have both their feet firmly planted in mid-air. Modern man has both their feet firmly planted in mid-air, signifying relativism. Everything is relative. You have no rights to judge anyone. Not only is it wrong to call another person a sinner, it is actually wrong to make any moral judgments at all about another person. But I tell you what, this position is absolutely not livable and sustainable. 
If no one has the right to judge anyone, society will become anarchy. To believe in sin as wrongdoing is not just judgmental. It's not judgmental. It simply follows from the common sense idea that some things are right and some things are wrong. Sin is the most easy to prove, but it's the most intellectually resisted fact. It is empirically most easy to prove. Anyone here park your car, you actually didn't lock your car today? Anybody come leave your house today, didn't lock your door? We lock the door because we believe sin exists. People will do wrong. People will come, maybe. Nowadays, we can't even publish directly with address because we are so afraid of all. Oh, because it's the church Sunday, go to church, that's the best time to break in. You know? In my previous church, we have a directory, there's no address. So sin is, it becomes anarchy. So to, to, to confront the child abuser or the cheat is not judgmental. It is an act of justice and compassion, both for the victims and the perpetrator of the crime. And so sin is not just becoming what we call localized, cultural relativism or judgmental. Sin is also sometimes seen as outdated. They say that we must progress. We live today in a rapidly changing culture a range of innovations unthinkable to earlier generation, developments in technology, communication, transports, and so on. We have access to vaster range of knowledge and culture data than any society in history. And so the root of sin lies in a moment of prehistory or non-historical myth, they call it. Sin is simply an old-fashioned idea based on premises people today can no longer Accept, and so sin is like outdated. It would, I mean, to answer that is very simple. It would remove our rights to criticize anything our own society or any other society society did in the past. In fact, the longer the longer ago the action was, if you go down this pathway, then the more immune from criticism that society would become. So, Inquisition is not wrong. The Crusade was not wrong. Colonialism was not wrong. Nothing is wrong because sin is defined as at that time. Now with modern knowledge, we get a knowledge, we understand better, and therefore we cannot criticize. So if morals truly change with the times, we have little basis for revulsion or outrage at anything that happened in the earlier era. You cannot feel angry at all. You have no right to feel angry if that is how you feel that sin has evolved. So we don't have to apologize, all right? Crusade or Spanish Inquisition or anything that is in the past because it is past. The sin is defined as personal, cultural, outdated, but there's another deadly way of defining sin nowadays. Sin is wrong-hated. Well, they say, all right, granted that there is an ideal of behavior that they're binding to all people, and if people fall short of all those ideals, does it automatically follow that they are sinners? Are they necessarily choosing to do wrong? Of course not, they say. People's shortcomings are no fault of their own. People are the more victim than villains, more sin against than sinning. So we can justify someone, all kinds of things due to their upbringing and, and all kinds of things that we can blame it on. Well, I think some of it is true, but many times it is inaccurate. It seems inaccurate and cruel diagnosis to accuse people of sin and call on them to repent of that sin 
when they are more accurately described as victims of life and society. Well, well, there was no, if there is no concept of personal responsibility, let me assure you there's no reason, no motivation for any personal transformation. Because that's not your fault. If it's not your fault, then there's no motive at all in moving forward. And our culture like to blame it on others, isn't it? Now we think that through education, maybe we can eradicate sin. Uh, D.L. Moody used to have a very interesting joke that says all these railway track workers stealing boats and nuts and screws, uh, they say, well, how to, how to help them? And someone said, well, send them for education. When they're more educated, they're more civil, they'll be, they know how to behave themselves. D.L. Moody said, well, if they, you send them for education, they'll come back and they'll steal the entire railway track away. C.S. Lewis used to say that education without values, as useful as it is, seems rather to make a man more clever devil. And the greatest devil is not done in those sordid dens of crime that Charles Dickens loved to paint. It is conceived and moved, seconded, carried, and minuted in clean, carpeted, warm, and well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voices. The cleverer the mind, the slippler the heart, if the heart is not right. And therefore, Christianity believed in the forgiveness of sin because it diagnosed the problem as the heart condition. Jeremiah 17 verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And Christianity believed that the heart is the issue. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart and that part of it need to be redeemed and the Jesus dying on the cross raising from the dead offer this promise on the forgiveness of sin and so but to recognize that your sinner is so difficult nowadays because nothing is wrong look at what Jesus says to his disciples after he rose from the dead he told them this is what is written the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Forgiveness of sin. The empty tomb, the empty cross, gives us the assurance, the promise that your sins will and are forgiven. Look at Isaiah 64. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Think of that phrase. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. The best of the thing that you have done ever here on earth. It, you think that can save you? It's like filthy rags. We all shiver up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. And true need of mankind is the forgiveness of sin. That Jesus died on the cross, take away the sin, rose from the dead, so that we can come to God, not based on our own deeds, but because of His work on the cross, that He conquered sin, and because He conquered sin, we then can come before God boldly, in Hebrews it says, boldly into His presence, because of Jesus paving the way for us, dying on the cross, rose from the dead, there is forgiveness 
of sin. So the empty cross promised us of forgiveness of sin. The second empty promise I want to give to you is the empty tomb. The empty tomb promise of hope beyond the grave. Hope beyond the grave. That that's eternal life. The empty tomb promised us that there is life after death. There is eternal life. Look at John 3.16, the verse that we so, so well known. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him, what? Shall not perish, but have eternal life. And that, can, that is being achieved because Jesus rose from the dead. The empty tomb gave us this promise of hope beyond the grave of eternal life. John 5, 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, believe on Jesus, the work of the cross. Salvation is his work, not our work. Not based on your behavior, not based on your doing, not based on how much you give to the Lord or how involved you are in the church. It's, that is a response of our thankfulness, the byproduct of our faith, not itself that saves us. And he says here, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. How about Romans 6 23 that says for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift is given to you it's not from your work it's given to you. Gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, in the past number of uh, months, I have many friends who died uh, from cancer. Life does not go on forever. With all our nurture and friendship, our wealth and our knowledge, our celebration and pleasures, there come those crossroads moments in our lives where no food can sustain life, no friendship can overcome certain eventualities, no celebration can be endless, and no pleasure can be perfect. The body ages and weakens, and it is not within the capacity of food to ultimately restore the strength of lost youth. It moves inexorably towards a diminishing return. There is death. Every one of us must face our mortality at some point. I have a friend. Uh, by nature, he's a busy, high-paced individual. And yet when he knew that her, his wife's days were numbered, he dropped everything else to attend to her needs. And during the weeks and months, uh, life ground down to just one purpose, taking care of the one that he loved. Uh, he sat by her side, loving her in the midst of her dissipating life. Nothing was good enough for her but fresh juices from only organically grown vegetables, processed only through certain type of juicer, no country was too far to go to find a cure. No expenses was too good to bring back her health. But the end did finally uh, come when her body was too far going for any nourishment 
uh, to sustain her. No bond was too strong enough to hold on to her permanently. And the problem, of course, was not with the nourishment or with the absence of his desire to prolong her life. The problem was that a destructive cell had so taken her body that the best of nourishment could not restore to life what was dying. And that break comes for all of us at different times and in different ways. Death is that final separation from all that we have worked for, all that we have built up, all that is near and dear to us. And it is too bad that dying is the last thing we do uh, because it could teach us so much about living. But hope ceases if there is no hope beyond the grave. And this morning I stand to proclaim to you the hope of His resurrection. There is death, but life is in Jesus, the hope of our resurrection. My sister-in-law, my wife's uh, sister, died of cancer 10 years ago, or 11 years ago, on the 2nd of April, very soon tomorrow, will be 11 years. Uh, and I remember my, my pastor in the, my old church uh, who came in, um, he also had stomach cancer. And, and my sister-in-law had a, had a property, and this pastor actually rented from her and lived in this property. And one day he came to me and said, well, I'm going to see your sister-in-law because I have cancer, she has cancer. And, uh, and I'm going to talk to her. And, and after that, I was just thinking, I said, what, what can she possibly talk to her about? If you are a believer, I can say to my loved one and say, well, I have cancer, this is temporary, I'll die, there's resurrection, we'll be reunited again in this future. Why are you going to say to your, my sister who don't believe in life after death, don't believe in Jesus? What kind of comfort you can say to, to, to them? Hard luck. Enjoy your last few months on earth. Say your last goodbye and, and all that. I used to work in a nursing home for a little while when I first started the church to supplement my income. And I used to bring this elderly lady to the room and I tend to strike out some conversation with them I say, who is this man on your, in this room? He said, well, that's my husband. You should meet him. He's the best gentleman. I'm so fortunate that I'm married to him. I said, where is he now? He said, I don't know. But you know what? I'd love to meet him again. And I walk away with that thinking. I say, how cruel if your belief system does not include life after death? There are tons and tons of questions that there's no answer. If you don't have, you cannot provide answer to this kind of thing. If Holocaust raises massive problems for, the, for those who believe in God, I think it raises even greater ones for the atheists, who has no appeal to transcendent values, but is left with what Albert Camus called the hopeless encounter between human questioning and the silence of the universe. Francis Bridger says this, he said, what has atheism to say to the burning children? That the Holocaust was just one of those things? That it was merely an unfortunate fact of history? That it was a meaningless event in a meaningless cosmos? None of this is acceptable. Atheism is the most cruel hypothesis of all. For it says that in the end, injustice cannot be righted. Suffering cannot be redeemed. Evil triumphs after all. There's nothing more the 80s can say to the victims of Auschwitz 
nor can he say more to anyone who wrestles with the problem and evil and suffering. But thank God, thank God, there is this empty tomb to tell us that there's hope beyond this grave. There is this resurrection. The bodily resurrection means there is a life beyond this one, a place where things will make sense, where God will rule, where evil will be vanquished. And so there become a transition of life, not a termination of life. Henry Nouwen, in his book, In Our Greatest Gift, A Meditation on Dying and Caring, tells a parable, interesting parable. It tells a parable of faith and hope. He imagines twins, all right? A brother and a sister talking to each other in their mother's womb. And then one of them said, tell me, do you believe in life after birth? And one of them said, of course, after birth comes life. Perhaps we are here to prepare for what comes after birth. Forget it. After birth, there's nothing. From there, no one has returned. And besides, what would it look like? I do not know exactly, but I feel that there are lights everywhere. Perhaps we walk on our own feet and eat on our own mouth. This is utterly stupid, the person said. The other one said, walking is impossible. And how can we eat with that ridiculous mouth? Can't you see the umbilical cord? And for that matter, think about it for a second. Postnatal life isn't possible because the cord is too short. Yes, but I think that is definitely something just in a different way than we call life. You're so stupid. Birth is the end of life and that's it. Look, I do not know exactly what will happen, but mother will help us. Mother? Do you believe in the mother? Say, yes. Ah, do not be ridiculous. Have you seen mother anywhere? Has anyone seen her at all? No, but she's all around us. We live within her. And certainly, it is thanks to her that we exist. Well, now leave me alone for this stupidity, right? I believe in mother when I see her. You cannot see her, but if you're quiet, you can hear her song. You can feel her love. If you're quiet, you can feel her caress you. And you will feel her protective hands over you. My friend, there is life after birth and there is life after death, according to the scripture. Hallelujah. Amen to that. Let me give you a third empty promise. The empty burial cloth. The empty burial cloth, I think, promised us of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The empty burial cloth promised of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, relationship is such a fundamental thing in life, isn't it? Loneliness is one of the hardest emotions to cope I always find two, two emotions are the hardest to cope. One is uh, loneliness and the other one is rejection. But let me tell you, Jesus experienced both of that emotions while he was on the cross. Do you know that? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He was rejected by everyone. He came for the people of his own. He was rejected. He was crucified to death. Jesus experienced 
those emotions that are hardest to cope. And the empty barrel cloth promised a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a relationship that's going on. It's not just about keeping rules and laws. Even the late Princess Diana often said, I don't want expensive gifts. I don't want to be bought. I have everything I want. I just want someone to be there for me, to make me feel safe, to make me feel secure. And she get none of it. Even Magdalene O'Hare. Anybody know Magdalene O'Hare? She's the most outspoken atheist in America in the early 60s. And said he, a movement started American Atheist Association and all that kind of thing. She was murdered and, and her son was murdered. Her granddaughter was murdered. And the other son became a Christian. Unbelievable. And even that, when they discovered her diary after she died, punctuated throughout her diary, she wrote this phrase, Someone, somewhere, please love me. Someone, somewhere, please Relationship is so important. And Christianity is about relationship with God. And the empty barrel cross that Jesus resurrected from the dead, he promised that he wants to embrace us. Look at John 1 verse 12. To all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Believe Him, receive Him. He gave you the right to become children of God. 1 John 3, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Lavish, what a beautiful word that we don't use very often, isn't it? Lavish, the Father lavish on us or extravagantly love us. Lavish on us that we should be called children of God. The famous verse, Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, if you open the door of your heart, Jesus said, I will come in and I'll eat with you and you with me. We'll have supper together. Maybe Papa Ridge or somewhere. Or pancake parlor. Or I'll come in. Food symbolizes relationship. Jesus said, I'll sit down and I'll sup with you. I'll have supper with you. I'll share with you. I'll join you on this journey. So the empty barrel cross, empty barrel cloth, promise of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The empty cross, promise on the forgiveness of sin, which is your past. The empty tomb, promise of hope beyond grave, which is eternal life, which is your future. And the empty burial cross, promise of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which is present. Past, future, present. And that engulfs your entire life. Let me close with this uh, story, and then we'll just sing our closing song on this Easter Sunday. There was a father uh, related how one of his son's favorite games was hide and seek. His son always hide. And the game always went the same, the father said. Dad always counted to 100 by fives. And then we shout out, Here comes daddy to find you, Tommy. And Tommy would always hide in the same room, in the same spot. 
But of course, that always went through the motions of looking in just about every other room and every corner except the one that Tommy was hiding in. He would go into one of the bedrooms and loudly proclaim, I wonder if Tommy is under the bed. Down the hall, he could hear the belly suppressed giggles of his child as he lifted up the sheets. I wonder if he's in the closet. Again, giggles from the other room, making his way into the bathroom. Dad would say, I wonder if he's in the shower. Giggles again. I wonder if he's in the toilet as he littered the seat. <laughs> the giggles were getting louder and louder and louder. And out in the hallway now, the father proclaimed, I wonder where Tommy could be. And then that moment, Tommy would burst out of his parents' bedroom crying, here I am daddy, here I am and throw himself into his dad's waiting arms but Tommy that's not how the game is played but Tommy didn't care that's how he played the game because for Tommy the object of the game was in being found and being able to rush into his father's arms that is the whole purpose of his game running and embracing the dead would you do that this morning that Jesus opened up his arm he wants to embrace you and he wants to love you and want to care for you want to have a relationship with you want to help you live this life really what life is all about and the resurrection makes it possible Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for today. Thank you today is Easter Sunday. It's a day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the heart of our faith. Lord, throughout history, great men had come and gone, and yet you live on. Harold could not kill you. Satan could not seduce you. Death could not destroy you. And the grave could not hold you. And because of you, the resurrection, we too can live. Thank you that the grave is only a journey into the presence of God. You have removed the sting of death. And you've empowered this thing called life. May we realize afresh today what your death and resurrection mean for us. Forgiveness eternal life and relationship with you and the ability to walk with you to this fallen world into eternity. May we always find our satisfaction in you and your willingness to offer yourself to us. May we like Tommy today, Lord, run to you and you are always there to embrace us and welcome us back. Thank you, Lord. As we sing this song again, we are reminded because He lives, we can face tomorrow. Amen. Would you stand as we sing this beautiful chorus again? God sent His Son.
lady. <laughs> it's okay to sing one more time because he lives. Shall we sing again? God sent his son. God, God sent, sent his, his son. They called him Jesus. He came to love. of your son has given us new life and renew hope help us to live as new people in pursuit of the Christian ideal grant us wisdom to know what we must do the will to want to do it and the courage to undertake it the perseverance to continue to do it and the strength to complete it may the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ his unconditional and unfailing love of God and the empowering presence and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.